So we turn now to God's word, uh, Psalm 145. Uh, Even though we have printed for you the entire text, I believe, uh, on your handout, verses 1 through 21, uh, we're going to be uh, actually looking at just 1 through the first half of verse 13, so 1 through 13a, for our scripture reading and for our message this morning. And I'll say something about that in just a few moments as to why that is the case. So Psalm 145, beginning at verse 1, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give you thanks, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. As I mentioned, we'll stop there in terms of the reading of the word. This morning, we'll only be looking at the first uh, half of this psalm, and we'll stop there at the end of verse 13a. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we come now to your word, and we pray for the working of your Holy Spirit in the most necessary way. We recognize and understand, Father, that the scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, are breathed out by you. We know that there is no common and ordinary way to fully grasp all that your word has to say apart from the working of your spirit. We know that your word is truth. And so we pray as Jesus uh, prayed himself when he said, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so we would pray for that. We would pray for the sanctification of our hearts and minds as we listen to your word today. And we would pray that scripture would always be calling us back to why you have created us and why you have redeemed us and what you have set before us in terms of how we should live. We pray for this, Lord, because if we're simply those who hear the word but are not doers of the word, then it's not of any profit to us. Father, we know that genuine faith will demonstrate itself in how we would live. And so that's what we pray for. We would pray for the grace that has saved us to be the grace that would enable us to be those eager to do what is good and right in this day. And so we pray, Father, enable us as believers in the Lord Jesus to be what he wanted us to be, salt and light, even to this world. In his name we pray. Amen. So once again, in terms of my situation in life, I'm a high school teacher. Recently, I've been teaching through Aristotle's ethics. 
Um, and so let me say something about that. This greatest of philosopher uh, correctly saw that ethics must be deeply connected to and even based upon man's chief purpose. You know, like the shorter catechism that speaks of the chief end of man. So Aristotle does this penetrating analysis in which he points out that the, the chief purpose of man is actually the pursuit of happiness. Human happiness is what every person seeks. And so he says this is the purpose of human life, the pursuit of happiness. He argues that this happiness, though, this, this pursuit, can only come about by living a virtuous life, a life of essentially ethical goodness. Yet Aristotle also writes that few people ever live this way, few people ever achieve this happy life, and that's because most people are blind to what true happiness is all about. They blindly believe that the pleasures of life, such as having money and power and position and involvement in, in sensuality, and we can translate this as the, the feeding and the fulfilling of human appetites, that these are the pursuits that lead to happiness. Now, we know that the Apostle John would call these pursuits the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. These are what people seek far more than the true path to happiness, which, as Aristotle argues, is the path of living a virtuous life. Now, this is a fascinating study for two reasons. First, Aristotle recognizes that man, people, all people, must live for a purpose. Secondly, he recognizes that this purpose is tightly connected to ethical and moral behavior. Those are very positive insights on Aristotle's part, but he was a pagan. His mind did not have the light of God's word, only the light of nature. He was deeply mistaken about the chief end of man. And so his ethics never arrive at the core essential principles of what the Bible says about our moral lives. That first and foremost, our highest moral principle is to love God supremely with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And Aristotle never came to the second principle either, that we are to love our neighbor, our fellow human being, even as we love ourselves. So the Apostle Paul says, in all contrast to all of the Greek wisdom and philosophy, not just to Aristotle, the Apostle Paul says that man's wisdom did not find God or know God. Rather, it was God's pleasure to make his wisdom known to the world through the preaching of the cross. Christ crucified. The power of God and the wisdom of God. So it's in and through Christ that God has brought back to human understanding the chief purpose of man our chief end. It's, it's like the Shorter Catechism has stated it. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And as we noted last Sunday, we find this rooted in all of Scripture, but specifically it's significant in terms of what Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4. For Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. For such the Father seeks to worship him. So Jesus is telling us, along with the rest of Scripture, that our chief purpose, even from creation, and the chief purpose of Jesus redeeming us and saving us, is so that we can live to glorify God. We can live to worship him. 
And we can live in such a way that we find our pursuit of happiness to be in our relationship with him, both now and forevermore. That that is our highest good. That is our true enjoyment in life, fellowship and relationship with Christ, which we're privileged to live out now and then blessed forevermore in the reality of what the Bible calls worship. Now, it's this main theme of our purpose that we bring to the psalm today. Since God saved us through Christ for the purpose of worship, we have the calling then to study his glory, the glory of Christ, so that we can give to him the adoration that he deserves. So, knowing our purpose is our essential calling. And out of that essential calling, there's the call to action, which is to actually practice in our lives the actual adoration of God. So adoration is a kind of a key verb that addresses our worship and the glorifying of God. But if you look at the outline that I have before you, you'll note that I have placed Christ at the center of this adoration. My, my first point is we adore Christ as king. And there's a good and biblical reason for doing this. In fact, several good and biblical reasons for doing this. First, as scripture says, God has spoken in these last days through his son, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And because Jesus has also said, he who has seen the son has seen the father. And Christ went on to say, all are to honor the son, even as they honor the father. And then the apostle Paul has testified out of Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And for these reasons, as we come to Psalm 145, we're going to come to the psalm in light of the person and the work of Christ, which is to say we're going to study it Christologically. We're going to look at the fuller meaning of David's inspired thoughts in light of its fulfillment and application in Christ. Now, that's what we will do in the first point. Establish that this is the right approach to reading the Psalms. And then the second point also puts Christ in the center of our adoration. We adore Christ in his glory. And here, what we'll actually do is to look at the Psalm, examine the Psalm, and to see how it enables us to look at the divine glory as it's presented to us in Christ. And that our third point will be an application as worshipers how we can adore Christ by practicing our calling and by using the psalm in this way. Now, before we do, though, two things about this psalm that would be helpful to you. First, this psalm is a, what's called an alphabetical psalm. That is, it's based on the Hebrew alphabet of 22 letters, uh, and the psalm itself is divided thematically into two written parts. So the first half is 1 to 13, but let's call it 13a, and the second part is 13b to 21. Now, if you had a Hebrew manuscript in front of you, uh, you would actually be looking at the text that we most often have today. And we'd see that the letter N in the Hebrew alphabet, the letter Nun, is missing. That is to say, this verse isn't there. 
and the copies of the Hebrew text, which we actually have from the Middle Ages. However, the much older Greek translation, the Septuagint of the second century before Christ, it has this missing verse, as well as the very ancient Dead Sea Scrolls and the ancient Syriac version as well. So it does seem that on the best of historical and archaeological evidence that we actually have this missing verse. The ESV has footnoted this information. The NIV has footnoted this information as well. And so that missing verse is the bracketed 13b. Now, the second thing, back to the psalm as a whole, all of the great commentators recognize that the psalm has two halves and that each has its own basic organizing theme. And there are various ways of stating these two themes. So let me just give you a very brief list. For instance, the first half, verses 1 through 13a, the great theme there is the majesty of God. The second half, the great theme is the mercy of God. Or, uh, similarly, the first half being the magnificence of God, the second half being the ministry of God. Or, the first half, you could say, reflects the greatness of God, and the second half reflects the practical goodness of God. Or, put it this way, the first half is about the glory of God for which he is to be adored. And the second half is about the graciousness of God toward those who look to him for all of their needs. And this morning, just the first half. How David adores God as the sole and rightful object of worship and devotion because God is his king. Now, <clears throat> If our sovereign God is pleased for this series to continue some weeks into the future, we will actually come to the second half of this psalm in which God is extolled as the sole responsible source of all of our blessings and provision. But we would be looking at uh, that half of the psalm through the lens of how our supplication is also integral to our worship of God. So, in the totality, this psalm celebrates the glory of God as the king of creation, so worthy to be adored, who takes care of his creation and upon whom his redeemed worshipers constantly depend. But for the sake of the first half, this is our main theme. That since God has saved us through Christ for the purpose of worship, we have the calling to study his glory so that we can give to him the Lord Jesus the adoration he deserves. And that really sets forth a, three, a threefold task. To see Christ as the object of our adoration. And to see how Christ is to be adored even through this psalm. And then to look at what this adoration would actually look like. To practice giving Christ glory in our calling of being worshipers of God in spirit and in truth. So this is where we begin. We adore Christ as king. That is, we come to the psalm and we see David extolling his God and king, uh, doing this kind of adoration every day, and knowing that he's going to be doing this forever as well. And we are to see Christ in this adoration of David. That is, we are to see that it's biblically right to see Christ. It's even a biblical mandate to do so. We are to see that it's right for us to take this psalm as the basis for adoring 
our Lord Jesus Christ. And here are several reasons why. The New Testament tells us, on the authority of Christ, that all of Scripture bears witness to Christ. And that's what gives us the authority to see, even in the Psalms, that they are bearing witness to Christ. But specifically, Psalms themselves foretell that Christ is to be the king of the people of God and even the king of all the world. For instance, Psalm 110, very first verse, David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Now, David is confessing that the Lord, Yahweh, spoke to his Lord, David's Lord, David's sovereign and master, these very words. But in Mark chapter 12, 35 to 37, Christ claims that David was speaking of him, that he, Jesus, the Messiah, was David's Lord and King. Now that's connected with the story that we find in Psalm 2. There God declares that he will set his king, even the Messiah, on Zion, his holy mountain. He declares that Christ, excuse me, he declares that his son is the king and that the king is his son, the king of his people, their true sovereign and Lord. And then he goes on to tell all the kings of the world to serve Yahweh by kissing the son that is making peace with this king, the son of God, or else they will perish in the wrath of the son of God. And then the psalm closes by stating that all who take refuge in the Son will be blessed. Now, it's highly significant, then, that the book of Revelation, chapter 19, and we should remember that the Revelation is the revelation of Christ. Christ gave this great prophetic work. That that chapter uses the language and ideas of Psalm 2 to describe the second coming of Christ in all of his glory, and specifically names Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we not only have the biblical right to make this connection between Christ and David and the psalm, we really have the responsibility to do so. For Jesus made this claim that all would honor the Son even as they honored the Father. John 5, 22 to 23, he writes, or he spoke, John recorded, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him, which is why the Psalms remain a central part of the worship of God in the New Testament. And it's also why all of those statements in the Psalms about God coming in judgment upon the world are statements about Christ, because God has given all judgment into the hands of his Messiah, his son, who is the king of all kings. Now, that's why it's biblically right and even biblically vital for us to read the Psalms this way. Now, that takes us then to our second point, to actually look at David's words this way, to look at these words Christologically, that we might adore Christ in his glory. Which is to say, let's look at the language. Let's study the language and ideas and truth that David presents so that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. So we begin with verses 1 to 2. David extols God as his, this, God as his king this way. 
I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Now, given how this kingship that is described in the Psalms is fulfilled in Christ, David is praising Christ for being his God and King. Now, the late theologian J.I. Packer, in his excellent little book, Concise Theology, reminds us of what God's kingship means in the scriptures, which then includes the kingship of Christ. Packer says that calling God king is a statement of his sovereignty and his dominion over all of his creation, over all aspects of his providence, over every facet and part of redemption whereby we are saved by grace. Specifically, Packer says this, God's dominion is total. He wills as he chooses and carries out all that he wills, and none can stay his hand or thwart his plans. In other words, kingship expresses Christ's sovereignty over all things of God's creation. Now then further down in verses 11 to 13, David is going to mention the kingdom again. He's going to speak of this kingdom as one having glory and power, a kingdom of glorious splendor, even a kingdom that is everlasting, a dominion that endures throughout all generation. And all this kingship belongs to Christ. And it is a kingship that is constantly exercised for our good as the redeemed of Christ. Then in verse 3, David extols the greatness of God a greatness that is fully shared by Christ. These words fully apply to the Son of God. Now, the idea of the greatness of God speaks to all that is in God. In all that is in God, there is a greatness that is unsearchable or unfathomable. Matthew Henry has described it this way. We must declare, great is the Lord. His presence infinite, his power irresistible, his brightness insupportable, his majesty awful, his dominion boundless, and his sovereignty incontestable. And therefore there is no dispute, but great is the Lord. And if great, then greatly to be praised with all that is within us to the utmost of our power and with all the circumstances of solemnity imaginable. In other words... It's beyond the ability of the human mind to comprehend the greatness of God. Our language, our mental abilities cannot do justice to the greatness of God. For his ways will always be higher than our ways. His thoughts always higher than our thoughts that Isaiah says about him. Yet the greatness of God we must confess. And we must confess it of Christ too. For in him... The Lord Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The greatness of Christ is unsearchable. Then we look at verse 5. David extols God for the glorious splendor of his majesty. Such glorious splendor belongs to Christ too. For Christ is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint and representation of God's nature. Remember that Jesus, before his incarnation, in all of his divine nature, shared this splendor 
of God's majesty in all of its fullness. Jesus speaks of this in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 and verse 5 when he prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So this splendor of the glory of God's majesty that David meditates on is the glory of Christ as well. It is his splendor. It is his majesty. It is the majesty of a king. It's the majesty that the prophet Isaiah saw in a vision in the very year that the good king Uzziah of Judah died, Isaiah chapter 6. For Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, with the, with the train of his robe filling the temple, hearing the six-winged seraphim calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And John the Apostle speaks of Isaiah's vision of God high and lifted up in all of the glorious splendor of his majesty. And John says this, Isaiah saw these things because he saw the glory of Christ and spoke of him. John 12, 41. Then we come to verses 7 and 9. David extols the fame of God's abundant goodness. Now, David could say that not only had the fame of God's abundant goodness been spread throughout Israel, it was a fame that touched all of God's creation. For in verse 9, David says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he's made. And in verse 10, All your works shall give you thanks. Give thanks to you, O Lord. Now, there is some good sense in which all of the world has seen and beheld the abundant goodness of God. For every creature under heaven has been blessed by God. As Jesus has said, your father who is in heaven makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust from Matthew 5.45. Now we can see this, but we can see so much more in Christ. For in, for in Christ, the abundant goodness of God far excels far exceeds the abundant goodness of his common grace. For in Christ, God came into the human experience. He has borne our sorrows. He has carried our sin. He has paid our penalty. He has suffered God's wrath in our place. And he has given us his own imputed and everlasting righteousness. And whenever the gospel has been preached throughout the world, the fame of God's abundant goodness in the person and the work of Christ has been spread. And when further in verse 7, David extols the righteousness of God, we must think of the righteousness of Christ imputed by God to us, received by our faith as that of which we must sing. And then verse 8. I want us to recognize, as you look at verse 8, that verse 8 is extolling the glory of God. That is to say, David here uses the words and language that repeat what God himself had proclaimed about himself 
in answer to the prayer that Moses had prayed in Exodus 34, when Moses said to God, show me your glory. And the words that God responded by were these, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So as David uses these words, he's closely connecting them to the glory of God as God revealed his nature and character to Moses. Therefore, we must not think about the majestic glory of God without confessing that in all that God is, he is all of grace, full of widespread mercy, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. But in these words, we also have the message of Christ. For in Christ, the fullness of God's glory is revealed. In Christ, we see the grace and mercy of God to those who are God's enemies. Christ died for them while they were yet enemies, while we were still sinners and ungodly. For if God had been quick to anger, there would have been no plan of redemption. There would have been no coming of the Savior. But the slowness of God's anger speaks of the great forbearance of his patience and the full glory of his steadfast love, all of which have come to us in Christ. If these words of God to Moses, repeated by David, have any meaning at all, that meaning is fully revealed in the glory of Christ. And then dropping down to verse 13a, where David concludes the first half of the psalm, he returns to extolling the everlasting kingdom and dominion that belongs to Christ eternally for all the generations to come. Now, here is what we've done. We've looked at these verses Christologically. We've looked at David's prayers in light of Christ, in light of his person, in light of his work. And we have seen that all of David's inspired adoration apply to Christ. The work of the Spirit in moving David to write these words intended this application to Christ. Because in Christ, the fullness of the glory of God is revealed. Now that leads us then to our final point, uh, the very purpose of worship. We adore Christ by practicing our calling, which is to worship him. Now then, how do we practice this? This causes me to think again about Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, which is sometimes called the Carmen Christi, the song of Christ. But it ends this way, wherefore God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we pray the Psalm of David according to the truth of Christ. And the way we can pray is to use David's words as a model. But seeing these words, seeing Christ in these words, 
is now what I want to illustrate. I'm going to take a few verses from our text, and you have the text printed before you. I would invite you to follow along with me. I'll note the verse, and then I will model how to pray these words interpreted in light of the person and work of Christ. So verse 1. Lord Jesus, it's my privilege that I can bring my worship to you. It is because of your grace that I, a sinner, can exalt you. I acknowledge that you are my King and my God. I know that having eternal life and fellowship with you means that I will praise you for all eternity. I am glad this is true. I know that my greatest and truest happiness lies in having you as my God. Verse 2. I want to be faithful in praising you daily. I want worship of you to be deeply habitual, second nature, something I think of first in every trial or temptation. At all times, Lord Jesus, you are worthy of praise. Even in the midst of disaster, you remain in control and as worshipful as ever. Give me the heart and spirit, the heat and light to lift up your name always, especially in the midst of these very hard times in life. Verse 3. I know, Lord Jesus, your greatness is unsearchable. It is impossible to fathom. I love to contemplate the immense reaches of your creation, the incredible vastness of all that you've made, a universe so large beyond our imaginations, and then I measure that against you and know that your, your, your supreme being envelops it all. This whole creation subsists in you. It is finite. It has an ending, but you do not. And Lord, I can express the words, but the thoughts cannot really truly be thought. I can visualize an end. I cannot visualize unendingness. And your greatness, Christ, never ends. It is unsearchable. And you uphold all of this creation by the word of your power. Verse 5. Lord Jesus, may I fix my thoughts in continual meditation on the glorious splendor of your King, your kingship and your kingdom, and to see with the eyes of faith your throne on high, and to know of its greatness and majesty. Verse 8. Lord Jesus, you are full of grace, mercy, compassion, rich in love, but uneasily angered. Lord, what prompts you to be this way? I love the words that Charles Wesley has written. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Tis mystery all. Let heaven and earth adore. Let angel minds inquire no more. Lord, truly, this is my only resting place, that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. In verse 9, O Lord Jesus, you are good to all, and you have compassion and mercy on all that, you're, all that you have made. Your compassion is very deep. 
And I owe my salvation to the depth of your goodness and mercy. In verse 13, Lord Jesus, I do bless you and praise you that your kingdom will not pass away like all earthly kingdoms do. There will be no loss of your kingship due to health or assassinations or fights over succession or internal rebellions or civil wars or invasions from enemies or climate changes or economic losses. None of all the vulnerabilities to earthly kingdoms will ever limit yours. Your reign and rule are everlasting. And therefore, I extol and adore you, my Lord Jesus. May my lips ever confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to commend to you the Psalms and the reading of the Psalms and the praying of the Psalms in this way. If you were to read the, the greatest of preachers, the Prince of Peter, Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, and what he writes on the Psalms, or that great and godly commentator, Matthew Henry, on the Psalms, then you would find that this is their commitment to the Psalms as they read them to see in them the glory of Christ. And I would encourage you, use the Psalms Read the Psalms daily and use the Psalms to adore your Savior, your Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. For God saved us in Christ for the purpose of giving Christ all glory in our worship. That we would be confessing the name that is above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you called us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we pray that we would take the full truth of your word, its full revelation of Christ, and ever more deeply incorporate what you have revealed to us, O Christ, in the scriptures into our daily worship of your Son, to honor the Son even as we would honor you, Father, to give Christ glory in our prayers, in our worship, in our walk in this life. O Lord, help us this year to find our deepest sense of who we are and a deeper and deeper sense of worshiping you that Christ will be lifted up and glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.